0: Hey creative, if you love the show and it has meant a lot to you, could you do me a favor? Would you share it with somebody that you care about? Your friend, your mom, your lover, whoever it is, because podcasts really are spread person to person. And I don't know about you, but the ultimate influencers in my life are my friends and family. So if all of you could share the podcast with just one person, It would make a massive difference in our creative community, grow it, and we can all help support and lift each other up and get toward our dreams even faster. So please, if you have time today and you feel so compelled, share the show with a friend. Oh, also, if you have time, feel free to like pop on over to Apple and leave it a rating and review and a rating on Spotify. Okay. Love you. Have you ever wanted to start over? Let's say you're deep into a career path. But you have this other dream that's on your heart and won't quit calling your name. But there's a part of you that's afraid to take the leap because of how much you've invested into the current path you're on. Today's guest is someone who can help you release some of those old dreams and start on a new path. He also has tons of unbelievable tools to help you trust, know, and love yourself. And of course... Unleash. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative, and this show is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Before I get into the guests, I wanted to let you know a couple things. Number one, Unleash is an official Webby Award honoree. And that is a huge deal. If you don't know, Webby Awards are basically like the biggest award on the internet. And huge, huge shows, not just podcasts, but like even Jimmy Fallon I saw is like, nominated for Webby Awards. So it's a big deal. And I just want to say thank you so much for listening, for being part of this community, for supporting me, whether you've been here from day one or you've just found the show. I appreciate you. Thank you for helping make this show what it is and allowing an indie podcaster to get recognized by this huge award. It's a huge deal and I'm so grateful for you. Number two, I guest hosted on the podcast At the Podium with Manuel Amezcua. Manuel is one of my coaching clients. He's an amazing person. He's the CEO of Mass Mutual Michigan. If you're interested in hearing the interview I did with him on his show, search At the Podium. And it's the first episode of this latest season, which I believe is season three. Check it out. I think you're going to love it. He's an incredible person. So, into today's guests. Today's guest is Ozan Verrill. He's a rocket scientist, lawyer, a leading thinker on creativity, innovation, and critical thinking, and a best selling author known for his book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, and his new book, Awaken Your Genius. His work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Time, BBC, CNN, The Washington Post, and more. He's delivered many keynotes for major brands such as Microsoft, Adidas, Google X, the US Department of State, and even the US Navy. Thank you very much. Ozon has had such a remarkable journey. Starting with his move from Istanbul to the United States, he is someone who is not afraid to reinvent himself and take the leap, even when all logical signs point to no. If his heart says yes, he goes for it. There is so much to learn from his path. So from today's chat, you'll learn how to balance your self-validation with having big dreams, the best strategies to get through writer's block, how to become the main character of your own life, ways to reinvent yourself, how to tune into your body's intelligence, and so much more. Now, here he is, the inspiring Ozan Veril. So Ozan, thank you so much for being here. I am obsessed with what you do in the world because I don't know if you know, but the goal of this show is to help people love, trust and know themselves enough to go after whatever it is that's on their heart. And that's exactly what you do in the world and in this book. So I could not think of a better human to talk to right now. Thank you for being here.
1: I'm so happy to be here, and I love that there's such amazing alignment between the book and the podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you, Lauren.
0: Oh, my gosh. So am I. Your book is a Bible for anybody who's looking to unleash themselves, know who they are, come back to themselves. And it really starts with your own journey. Of course, you use and have used all these principles that you explore and show up with in the book. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your creative journey. You went from growing up in Turkey with a dream of becoming an astronaut, to moving to America, to going to college, to becoming an actual rocket scientist, to becoming a lawyer, to becoming a professor and teaching law, to an author and thought leader. So you have just... Traverse so much territory in your life and in your creative journey. Can you share how you let go of your beliefs along the way and what you thought you should be to become who you are in all these different versions of who you are?
1: Sure, yeah, I'll give you, and we can talk about different aspects of the journey, but I'll begin maybe with the, sort of the latest transition I had since your question was about like letting go and stepping into who you are. So I was a law professor for 10 years. I started in 2010, I got tenure in 2016 or 2017. And tenured professors are professors for the rest of their lives. Like, they don't quit their jobs. And tenure is the ultimate safety net because you can't get fired. You've got a steady paycheck for the rest of your life. And I loved teaching for six or seven years. And I remember distinctly one day in 2017, I walked in front of the class, like behind a podium, put my nose down, Mm -hmm. and my whole body sank. Like, my chest collapsed. My heart sank with that feeling of, like, not again. I can't believe I'm about to teach this class in the same way that I taught over and over and over again. And at first I thought, oh, maybe that's a fluke. Like I'm just having a bad day, but the signal from my body kept coming up. And so I leaned into the signal and eventually decided to leave academia It was really scary because not only is it an amazing safety net, but also because it was so tightly wound up in my identity. Like I was a professor, I a professor in front of my name and letting go of that and then starting over again as a writer of non-academic books was really humbling and freeing at the same time. But, you know, it started this journey that culminated in the publication of my last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, and then the one that's coming out now, which is Awaken Your Genius.
0: So many things to learn from that incredible story. Thank you for sharing it. You brought up something that I like talking about, which is when you have a new dream bubbling up, we're often reluctant to let go of the old one because we're holding on to those pieces from our identity. We're holding on to the person who was dreaming that dream who no longer is. What are some ways to start to gently release our old dreams so we can make space for the new?
1: Yeah, I talk about a number of strategies in the book, and I'll share maybe two here, the ones that popped up immediately. So these two were really important for me. Number one, letting go is an act of love.
0: Mm.
1: Letting go of something that served you well is an act of love, and there is birth and death. I love this quote from Joseph Campbell. He says, the earth must be broken to bring forth new life. Like If the seed doesn't die, there is no plant. If wheat doesn't die, there is no bread. Life lives on lives. So our old selves become compost for our new selves. Our old truths become seeds for new revelations. Our old paths become lighthouses for new destinations. And so for me, one of the biggest shifts in my mindset was looking back on the past seven years I had spent in academia and realizing that that was not a waste of time, right? I could take what I learned and I could use what was dying as fertilizer for what was awakening. So for example, my ability to write, that was really honed in academia because I spent seven years writing. My ability to engage audiences and tell stories, I'd done that for seven years teaching these, you know, hundreds of students. Many of them did not want to be in the room because I was teaching these required classes. And so to be able to engage them and draw them in required me to become a really good storyteller. And I could take all of those skills my ability to like dissect research studies i could take all of those skills blend them up like my building uh, basic lego blocks blend them up and build something new and so that's the i think one of the most important mind shifts is realizing that you haven't wasted anything economists call these sunk costs like the time money and resources you spent into doing something they're not costs they're gifts from your former self to your current self and you can take those and apply them to your next thing and number two and this is also really difficult for me is your ego gets in the way Mm. so the ego which gets off on accolades and titles if you're being rewarded for something that has served you really well in the past, it becomes really hard to let that go. And I alluded to this earlier with, you know, I had professor in front of my name. I had made a name for myself in this field. And all of a sudden, I was a beginner again. And that's a really humbling experience. It's also really freeing because you're starting anew and you can do whatever you want now. But it's also humbling in the sense that you're letting go of what once was and what made you successful in the past. There's this Buddhist parable that I also keep in mind that I share in the book as well, but there's this man who builds a raft to cross a raging river and he gets onto the other side and he picks up his raft and he starts walking into the forest, but the raft starts impeding his forward progress. Like it starts snagging into the trees and he can't move forward any longer, but he refuses to let go of the raft. He says, I built this thing, it saved my life. Mm. But to survive today, He has to let go of the raft that saved his life yesterday. And so that was a conversation I had with my own ego of like, yeah, we built this raft together. It brought us to where we are, but to get to where I want to be, to get to the creative work that's bringing me alive, I need to completely let go of who I once was.
0: So beautiful. So you're bringing up something that I've been kind of going through for the last year, which it sounds like a lot of people use a lot of different words for it. But it's a bit of ego death of going inside of yourself and figuring out, okay, how can I get self-validation instead of going out into the world looking for my validation and doing things based on what I think other people are going to want or praise? How do you balance getting your validation internally with having big dreams? I don't see those
1: two as contradictory. I think it's a choice in terms of where you get your approval from, right? Mm -hmm. So you can seek approval from external sources in the form of metrics and accolades and accomplishments, external accomplishments, or you can get it internally. And this was a shift for me, by the way, for the vast majority of my life. I was focused on external sources of approval, which made life really difficult for me (laughs) because those external sources of approval, when they're there life is awesome. But when they're not there, and they're not always there, then you're starving. You're starving for meaning. You're starving for validation. Something I need to remind myself of on an ongoing basis. External sources of approval are like fossil fuels. They don't burn clean. There's a limited supply. And you grow dependent on them. And then they run out. And then you need more, and you need more, and you need more. Whereas internal approval it's self-renewing. It's like renewable energy. It burns clean. And you've got that infinite source within that you can tap back into anytime you want. And so on a moment-to-moment basis, my happiness should not be, and your happiness should not be defined by whether someone else says yes or no to you. And I used to love my life like that. And it really sucked.
0: It's a drag.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, such a drag. And it comes up with like the writing of a book too. When I was writing Awaken Your Genius, My last book was quite successful. And so there was this tendency to be like, well, I want to repeat the same formula that led to that external validation in the past that got the book translated into 25 languages. And so I tried to use the same formula, the same structure, the same everything. And for the first time in my life, I got writer's block. I had never had writer's block before, and I couldn't write anything for like a month. And then I said, okay, like, I need to let this go. I need to let that desire to produce the same type of external approval based on what I did in the past go. And I need to lean into what's coming up on a day-to-day basis for me. And as long as I can be proud of the way I showed up, like, as long as I can be proud of the way I showed up in this interview, as long as I can be proud of the writing that I did, the creative work that I put out into the world, that's the only thing that I can control. I can't control how audiences respond. I can't control how critics respond and try to control something that's outside of your control is not only a waste of time, but it's also exhausting and it leaves you feeling depleted. So I try to remind myself, like, the only thing I can control is how I show up and you let go and let God.
0: Yeah, beautiful lesson. So I wanted to ask you about your own creative process because you give so many great tips for creative process and getting through blocks, but... Once you got through that month of writer's block, where did you start?
1: I started by telling myself that I'm going to let go of everything, my outline, my structure, table of account, whatever I had planned. And I said, okay, I'm going to completely let go of that. And I'm going to build the individual puzzle pieces first. So my last book was very different. Like I had the entire picture mapped out and then I built the puzzle pieces depending on or with the goal in mind of like this is how they're going to connect and I knew exactly where I was going to go with this book I had no idea I said I'm just going to build the individual puzzle pieces first and then we'll see what they add up to which is what I ended up doing and one of the things that helped me and I did this with my last book too with Think Like a Rocket Scientist is separating idea generation from idea evaluation We often try to do it both at the same time. And trying to do both at the same time is like trying to drive a car with your feet on both the gas and the brake. Mm. You can't move. Like the moment you start moving with idea generation, the inner critic comes in and he's like, oh, no, that's no good. That idea is no good. Or the sentence you just wrote sucks. And so having that internal dialogue where you're writing a sentence or two sentences and then evaluation comes in automatically or immediately it's really hard to make forward progress so i separate idea generation from idea evaluation in the first stage of the process anything is welcome i'm just writing and i don't care if something sounds wild or unreasonable and i try to remind myself that ideas that make a big impact will seem unreasonable at first because if they were reasonable someone else would have thought of them already And so the goal in the idea generation phase is to just not censor, not critique, not evaluate. You're just like letting your inner child come out and play with ideas, whatever might come up, you're exploring. And then there's an important function for the inner critic to come in to then evaluate those ideas. But for me, it's really important to separate those two phases to not let evaluation hamper generation.
0: When you're talking just now, I just thought about you have so many different pieces of yourself. You know, you have this scientist piece of yourself and you have this lawyer piece of yourself and then you have this wild, creative piece of yourself. How do they sometimes fight each other and what happens when they work in tandem?
1: Yeah, what a great question. And I love the way you described it as like parts of yourself. I don't know if you've heard of internal family systems. For those who are listening who haven't heard of it, it's a way of thinking of yourself in parts. So when you say like a part of me feels sad or a part of me is critical or a part of me feels angry, there's actually a part of you that feels that so you're made up of these parts and as woo-woo as it sounds you can actually have conversations with these parts to try to negotiate things with them and certainly like i have a, a scientist in me and a lawyer in me and a creative in me and on the best days that i have those parts are working harmoniously with each other and supporting each other and building together and on some days they're in conflict with each other like the lawyer is yelling at the scientists The scientist is yelling at the creative, you know, not looking up the research study that's going to back up the point. And so I often need to then play the role of mediator and have conversations with those parts. And I do this in writing often. So I journal every morning. And so if there's something that kept me up at night, and it's usually the voice of one of the critical parts in me that like will wake me up at four in the morning and say like, the direction we're taking with this chapter is not good. uh, And here's why. And then i can get up in the morning and have a conversation in writing and address that part and say like thank you very much for your concern and i see this message in some books where you label parts of yourself as bad there was like this one book that referred to the asshole that lives in your head
0: oh yeah the inner asshole
1: yeah i think that's really detrimental the moment you label any part of yourself as bad that part doesn't go away it actually like starts downing Red Bulls and starts doing pushups and comes back stronger than ever. So I've learned that I need to gently negotiate with my inner scientist or inner critic and say, like, this chapter we're taking, there's actually not going to be any science. But I I really appreciate your concern. There's parts of the book where we're going to bring in research studies, but this chapter is not one of them. That type of dialogue I find really helpful.
0: So many beautiful lessons on shame and not exiling parts of yourself just right there. I'll have to re-listen to that section a few times (laughs) because I really do think shame and telling yourself you're bad is antithetical to creation. It's shrinking, right? It's that thing that happened when you got up to the podium. That's also what happens when we label ourselves. Something I love in this book and your whole MO is you work from a place of self-trust. And you say, we have to stop going to self-help gurus who tell us they can fix us or our lives and instead learn to live and look within ourselves. What do you think that we're being robbed of when we buy into this idea that someone's going to come save us or save our lives?
1: We're being robbed of so many things. Number one, just the inner power that we have, the inner wisdom that we have. I think we're so conditioned to look externally for answers, to immediately jump on Google to look up or to go to a mentor immediately to seek advice, to immediately buy an online course without even stopping and asking, like, what do I actually think? What do I think I should do versus outsourcing that question? It's like Tolstoy's fabled beggar. There's this man who's sitting and pleading for pennies from passersby, and he doesn't realize that he's actually sitting on a pot of gold. And I think we act that way in so many different ways. Like you have so much wisdom within you. You're made up of every experience you've ever had, every person you've been, every life you've lived, every mistake you've made, every relationship you've had, every piece of your beautifully messy human existence, this vast reservoir of wisdom waiting to be explored. But we go searching for other oceans and we don't know our own depths.
0: Mm. Okay. So let's deep dive into your book. This introduction is the best introduction of any book I have ever read. It made me feel deeply. It hooked me in. It let me know exactly what I was going to get out of the book. I have never felt so whole after reading a person's introduction. Usually it just feels like it's like slapped on there and it's like, okay, enjoy the book. You really took me on a journey can you first of all share what you think goes into a good introduction of anything, but in particular a book, and how you went about composing this intro?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, by the way. That really means a lot.
0: It was incredible.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I always write the introduction last. So it was the last thing I wrote. And for me, a good introduction meets the reader where they are. So this is the current reality that we're living in, right? Like this is the current position you're in. And then it paints a picture between the gap of what life currently is and then what life can look like. And then it bridges that gap. And it says, here's where the book comes in. And the book is, you know, the introduction is very clear too of like, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. That's your job and not mine. My goal is to help you unlock the wisdom within and unlock the stories within. And it explains to the reader exactly what I'm going to do to get them there. And so I have this arc in the introduction that describes the five parts of the book, this journey that you take from where you are now and where you could be. And, you know, they're titled The Death, The Birth, The Inner Journey, The Outer Journey, and then Transformation. And yeah, you're painting a picture of how you can get from where you are now to where you could
0: be. I mean, just to give you an example of like how powerful it was for me, I was reading it and my boyfriend was in the other room. I was like, oh, my gosh, wow. He kept being like, what, what? I'm like, we need to read this book. We need to read it now. After I read that, I'm like, he is going to change my life. There is no way Mm. this won't change my life. So just beautiful job. Everyone needs to read this book. Let's dive in a little bit. One of the things you do say in the intro is that a lot of us are playing supporting characters in our own lives. And if someone's finding themselves in that role, what is the first step to bring in that main character energy?
1: I think the first step is to just realize if you are playing that role, to have that realization that you are playing a supporting character. And by supporting character, I mean living a life that is unaligned with who you are, where you don't have the reins, you let go of control to other people or other sources of information, and you haven't done the inner work necessary to determine what you think and what you really want from life. So, I think it all begins with self reflection. And by self reflection, I mean looking within and figuring out what you actually think. You know, one of the questions that stumps so many people when I ask it to them What do you want? What do you really want? It can be one of the hardest questions to answer because most of us go through life from birth to death without really knowing what we want and without really knowing what we think because we're constantly told what we should want and we go along with the choices that other people have made for us versus the choices that we can make for ourselves I'll give an example of that for my own life I remember I was a college freshman and talk about the story in the book too and I was a college freshman and so trying to figure out what I want from my four years right and I have an idea of actually because I didn't just go immediately to the course catalog to try to figure out like which of these suits me I began with first self-reflection And asking myself, what do I actually want from this four-year experience? And then once I did that, then I turned to the course catalog and I read through every major available and none of them appealed to me. And so my initial instinct was like, all right, well, I'm going to have to like Tetris myself into shape to fit into one of these boxes that someone else drew. But then an inner voice said, don't do that. I wonder if there's a way to create your own box, to create something that is not even boxed to go off menu. And I went to the registrar's office and like I explained my conundrum to them. And I said, none of these work for me. And I asked them, is there a way for me to design my own major? And the answer shockingly was yes. So there was this little known program that allowed a select group of freshmen, you had to apply for it, to design their own major and whatever classes that they wanted to take. And I applied and got in and I got to design this four year adventure for myself, freed of all of these requirements. And that lesson stuck with me of, one, figuring out what you want, and two, asking for it. And if it doesn't exist, creating it yourself. Because the best things in life aren't on the menu, but it all begins by asking and figuring out for yourself what you want, and then going for it, creating it yourself.
0: So let's start with part one of this book, which, as you said, is the death. It's about eliminating who you're not so you can discover who you are. So there's three chapters uneducate, discard, and detox. My question is, how long do these things take? Because to me, I'm like, this feels like a lifelong journey. Like, Are you ever done with uneducating, discarding, and detoxing?
1: No, you're never done. It's an ongoing process for sure.
0: And if somebody's beginning these, where do they start? Where do they start with these big, big topics that will continue to evolve throughout a lifetime?
1: Sure. I think discarding is all about figuring out what is weighing you down. And to figure out what is weighing you down, listen to those signals that your body is sending you. So I gave you the example of me stepping in front of the classroom and my whole body just sinking. And by the way, 10 years before then, I totally would have ignored that signal because I was operating from my mind and I ignored my body. My body was just like a vehicle for carrying my brain around. It didn't matter. But the more that I pay attention to the signals that my body sends me, the better I'm able to be in touch with myself and figure out what is weighing me down and what is not. So I think that's the most important bit. The other bit is listening to the parts of yourself that are coming in and telling you things. And so whenever I hear, for example, a voice in my head that says, you should do something, you should meditate every morning, or you should be more active on social media, or you should you know, sit your butt down and write a thousand words today, nine times out of 10, that voice isn't me. It's like something that I picked up from somewhere else and I need to examine it. And so these are voices that are just constantly in our heads, but we don't take the time to actually examine and to sort which of these voices are noise that we picked up from other people and which are the signals that are actually aligned with who we are as people. And for me, the best way to do that is to free write in the morning. So I'll, you know, I'll journal every morning and it's just like a thought dump. And I write about everything from new ideas that I have for books to what's stressing me out, what's keeping me up at night. And then once you start doing that, you begin to notice patterns, layers of conditioning that you picked up that don't belong to you, and you can begin shedding them.
0: I love how much you talk about the intelligence of our bodies, because I think This is something that is just dawning on society in general right now that we've been walking around basically as floating heads for the last hundred years. Right. And that we need to come back down into the body. How did you start learning your body's intelligence and feeling in your body instead of just always trusting your mind?
1: I know exactly the moment. I I was in Dublin to give a keynote and. There was a farm nearby that offered skeet shooting. So like they would launch clay targets and then you try to shoot them. And I'd never done it before. And I was like, all right, I'm in Ireland. They're offering this thing. I'll go try it. And so they would shoot this clay target and I would mentally calculate like, you know, this is the scientist part, right? Mentally calculate, pitch, velocity, distance. And then I'd try to like pull the trigger when I thought was the right moment. And I kept missing, like I would miss every single time. And then the instructor took pity on me and he came over and he said, you're overthinking it. And I was like, I have no other mode of thinking available. (laughs) Uh, And and then (laughs) he's-
0: That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's a scientist for sure. I have no other mode of thinking available. And then he said, listen to your body. Your mind is getting in the way. Pull the trigger when you feel like it's the right moment, not when you think it is. I was like, huh, okay let me try that. So I shut down my overthinking mind Then I pulled the trigger when I felt like it was the right moment and I nailed the target that center. And then that began this process of self-reflection for me, where I like thought back on my life of how many times I had refused to follow my body. Like how many times my body said, this relationship that you're in needs to end but I would override it with like pro and con calculations. Like here are the, you know, the amazing parts of this person. Even though it was clear from my body, I knew deep down the relationship wasn't working. Or how many times I ended up hiring someone or agreeing to a business relationship because it looked great on paper, but I knew in my gut that there was something fishy about this person. And every single time, without fail, my body was right. And so having done that self-reflection that one experience in dublin started this process of like okay there's so much wisdom in the body i'm going to lean into it more than reminding myself of the moments that my mind led me astray by the way this doesn't mean you ignore the mind it just means you don't treat the body as this empty vessel you align the mind with the body and you realize that like the body from an evolutionary perspective dates back millions of years the mind arrived on the scene yesterday. It's so new, especially the prefrontal cortex. And so there's all of this ancient wisdom in the body that's stored in the body that presents itself in ways that the mind can't make sense of or can't explain rationally, but your body can pick up on so much. And the more you listen to it, by the way, the stronger the signals get. So it's a journey and it's a lifelong journey of aligning the body with the mind. When you can do that, just watch for next level magic to happen.
0: Wow. Yeah. You just gave me... This image, like the mind is basically like America and the body is like the rest of the world. We're just very young.
1: (laughs) It's true. Yeah, super young. Yeah. yeah.
0: So how do you practice it on a daily basis? Is it just noticing things, starting to notice? Do you intentionally drop in?
1: Yeah, I'll intentionally drop in. Like earlier today, I kept noticing my gut was clenched. Like I I was like, I kept looking down. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not breathing. I'm actually not completely breathing. And so something is bothering me. And so then I will leave the room that I normally work in. And I'll go sit down somewhere and check in and see what's going on. And there's usually something that I'm missing because I'm just so focused on, especially with my upcoming book launch, so focused on the do, do, do that I didn't notice until I checked in with myself that my gut was so constricted. And then I checked in and these important messages came through and it's like a muscle where like the more you do it the more you realize it but once you begin to notice those things those signals can be really powerful but most of us don't do it right like there's this condition called email apnea where people hold their breath while they're texting or emailing without even realizing it and it's so common
0: oh my gosh we all need to start looking out for that i'm pretty sure i do that because i remembered earlier this year you know tignatan
1: yeah sure yep
0: So someone asked him, famed monk, and he's passed since then, so R.I.P., but asked, how can we start to love ourselves? And he literally said, breathe and remember you have a body. And I was like, what? So I decided to just try starting that. And I noticed that I wasn't breathing at all in my whole life. I just like was doing the bare minimum to stay alive. And that when you just breathe and picture the breath going from your top of your head down through your feet, your whole life changes.
1: Yeah, I mean, breath is like the source of life. And this doesn't, by the way, have to take the, the form of like meditation, which I'm a longtime meditator, but I don't do it the same way I used to. I would sit down every 20 minutes in the morning and I'd force myself to meditate and then go out about my day. And then, so this is what I would do is those 20 minutes was the only time during the day that I would actually pay attention to my body. And I would just stop. Like, oh, I did my 20 minutes. It's like going to the gym, you know, for an hour and then just sitting down for the rest of the day, which isn't healthy. So now instead of doing that, I actually will just make a practice of like periodically checking in with my body. So like meditation in the morning doesn't serve as an excuse for me to be disconnected from my body for the rest of the day. Just like going to the gym for an hour twice a week shouldn't serve as an excuse to just have a sedentary lifestyle where you're just sitting all day every day and then using that one hour two hour excuse to be active so now it's spread out through the day and for me and do what works for you of course but for me that tends to be a lot more healthier and a lot more sustainable and a lot more effective than forcing myself to sit down and meditate for 20 minutes and then ignoring my body for the rest of the day
0: yeah you actually have some pretty interesting ideas about meditation in the book too do you want to go over any of those
1: Sure. Yeah. Happy to do it. So again, I'm a longtime meditator and it really was a part of my identity. Like I'm a meditator and I really believe in the benefits of meditation. And then I came across this research study. It's a meta-analytic review. So systematic review of other research studies that have spotted adverse effects in a really pretty significant I don't remember the exact numbers but pretty significant portion of meditators my initial reaction was to dismiss the study right (laughs) so when like identity comes into conflicting information to preserve the identity you'll push away the conflicting information and say, that can't be true. That is not aligned with who I am as a person and my identity and my beliefs. And so I'm going to push it away. That was my initial response. And then I came back to it because it kept nagging me a few days later. And I was like, all right, like the research is solid. And then I decided to share it with my email list. So I have a weekly email that goes out every Thursday to meditate on the dangers of categorical thinking. So saying that Something is a universal remedy. So meditation is a universal remedy. It's good for everyone. And human beings very much are designed to put things and people into categories We're wired to act that way. Like yes, no, right, wrong. College is essential, college is useless. Or Elon Musk is the devil or Elon Musk is a hero. Like it's either or thinking. And I shared the research to just meditate on the dangers of that. There is so much beauty in the middle. There's so much beauty in complexity and i shared it and interestingly i got more hate mail for that email than anything else i've written in recent memory and so people were like you know you're turning people away from meditation how dare you i'm unsubscribing you're a fraud all of this stuff And i was like reading it and reflecting on how on zen that was because these are meditators right <laughs> these are meditators who are sending hate mail, and this is the irony, like meditation itself teaches non attachment to identity, non-attachment to beliefs and ideas. But I think their reaction was all too human, which is when we do firmly believe in something, when we do define ourselves by a certain identity, that identity then gets in the way of clear thinking, of self-connection, connection with other people who don't think, the way that we do so i share that in the book openly and by the way whenever i get hate mail it hurts but i do think there are important lessons embedded there so i shared it because yeah identity can get in the way of seeing your own self and your own beliefs clearly
0: wow Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think our culture right now, I don't know, obviously, this is the only time I've been alive. So I can't really speak 100% for other times. But it feels like right now, there's a particular aversion to anybody who says there could be some gray area. You know, anybody who's not all the way one way or the other, they just get attacked. And It's weird because I actually think that that kind of mentality could heal the world because we could start having empathy, curiosity, compassion for other people. And even if we don't agree, maybe reach some level of understanding of how they got to where they are. But it's going to take a lot more people like us getting a lot more hit mail, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Curiosity is the most important part. Curiosity about like this research study or curiosity about where the other person is coming from, how they got their perspective, curiosity over persuasion, curiosity Mm -hmm. over victory, curiosity over, you know, you're wrong, I'm right, and here's why. I think that life just becomes a lot more interesting that way and a lot less stressful, by the way, because the persuasion thing, like, I'm going to just like beat you over the head with facts and data and tell you why you're wrong and downright immoral. Not only does it not work, but it alienates the other person and then it exhausts yourself. A life built on curiosity is, I think, far more interesting and far more fun.
0: I totally agree. So something you spell out in the book, which I think will be really helpful to anyone listening, is a counterintuitive way to generate original ideas. Can you share that?
1: Yeah. And I call this strategic procrastination. And I'm actually a master procrastinator. I procrastinate a lot, not in the way that one might assume. So I will, whenever I'm writing anything, it could be a keynote I'm giving or a book. I will start as soon as possible and I'll jot down ideas and then I will walk away. And the walking away is very intentional. So starting something and then deliberately stopping ignites this like thought factory in your mind, your subconscious kicks into gear and now you're like, okay, i Dedicated myself to writing this book. I've jotted some ideas down. And as you go about your day, that thought factor in your mind and body is active and it's churning up new ideas. It's bringing things to the surface. And so I'll then, you know, jot down those ideas and I'll keep coming back. So I'll come back, I'll write some more, I'll step away and then let the subconscious sort of absorb what I did that day, make new associations, create new ideas. And then I go back to what I was doing before. I heard Quentin Tarantino, who's one of my favorite film directors, speak on a podcast and he has a similar practice too. So he'll write a scene and then he's got a heated pool and he'll go into the pool and he'll just float and he'll think about the scene. And then new ideas will come and he'll jot them down. And then those ideas will become his work for the next morning. That process also makes it easier to start, right? So when you've got that like, the ideas that you generated during that procrastination phase, that intentional pause phase. Now the pool has been heated. Like you're not cold. You're like not staring at a blank page, not knowing what to do next. It's been heated with new insights, inviting you to dive back in.
0: I love that. I always say rest is a vital part of the creative process. And I feel like that's exactly what you're illuminating right now. Something else we talk about a lot on the show is honoring the inner child. I think the inner child has so many keys for us as far as how to unleash. And you talk about something in the book called first principles. Can you talk about those and what could change for us if we all got back to them?
1: There's a quote I love from Anthony Gaudi, who's the famous Catalan architect. He says, originality consists of returning to the origin. So reconnecting with your own origin, the things that you love doing before the world told you what you should love, before the world told you who you should be, and before the world told you how you should spend your time, what would you do? So go back to your own origin and what made you weird or different as a kid can make you extraordinary as an adult. And I think, unfortunately, so the first principles are your basic Lego blocks of like your talents, interests and preferences. And often they're going to be present at your origin. Unfortunately, if you're like most people, you were probably shamed for having those differences. And so you learn to conceal them. You learn to conceal them. And I call this idea embracing your purple in the book because growing up, my favorite color was purple but I wanted to fit in and so when people asked me what's your favorite color I would say blue because blue was what normal boys were supposed to like and I really really wanted to be normal so reconnecting with my own purple finding my own purple has been this lifelong journey and so like one of the things for me just to give an example of what was present for me from the origin was storytelling shortly after I learned how to read and write I would write stories. My grandfather had this old typewriter, and there's actually a typewriter over my shoulder here. It's a testament to that moment. And I would sit there, you know, as like a six, seven-year-old, and I would write stories. I would write screenplays, not because I had a homework assignment or someone told me you this is what you should be doing, but because I thought it was really fun to create characters and create stories and write things. And that theme of storytelling has been this Lego block, this first principle that's been there for me all along. It's manifested itself, like the ingredient has remained constant. The recipe has changed. As a lawyer, I would tell stories on behalf of my clients. As a law professor, I would tell stories in the classroom to captivate students. Now, as a writer of nonfiction books, I tell stories in these books, true stories, to convey certain principles. And so the recipe has changed, but the ingredient has remained the same. And that ingredient was there in the origin. That was one of the things that my inner child loved to do. And so there's so much power in reconnecting with that and and unleashing that.
0: So beautiful. Now, I wanted to start this show because you echoed a similar principle in it. I believe repressed creativity is the cause of so much of the world's suffering. And there's so many people walking around with their purple in them or with a song in them that they need to get out. But there's some people out there, and I would put myself in this category in some facets of my career, where we have unleashed and we've shown it to the world. And the result hasn't been what we thought it should be. I'm a singer as well and a songwriter, and I feel like that in some senses with my singing and songwriting career. If someone's out there in this phase, how do they move past that disappointment or expectation and get back to that love? Time for diet coke break. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Da 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 da. I really need Love what you love. Diet Coke. Get Runway Ready. A chance to win the ultimate shopping experience plus hundreds of prizes curated by Kate Moss. Promo packs in store 18 plus Ts and C's. Visit Coke.co.uk slash break.
1: Yeah, great question. And it can be really difficult to do, especially depending on the response. So I'll share a couple of ideas. One is there is a fear in the beginning that your creations are going to be not great. And I fear is actually an accurate one because when you're just starting out, like your creations are not going to be great. And that's true, whether you've been doing this for a really long time, like the first drafts of my book chapters are awful. I'll go back and look at them and like, they make me cringe. I wrote a post about this two years ago, the first version of my blog. Somehow I found it somewhere, And it was terrible. The messaging, the branding, everything was so bad because I just didn't know. And how can you know what you're doing if you've never done it before? I think that's really important to keep in mind. We often compare ourselves to the creators that we put on a pedestal, like the authors that we admire, the singers that we admire. And we don't realize that we're comparing our beginning to their end. Mm. they've been doing this for a really long time and you're not seeing you know my book awaken your genius i've revised this thing more times than i care to remember and so many capable hands have had their hand in shaping the book and bringing it to where it is now right now but you're not seeing the earlier drafts or you're not seeing the earlier versions of that stand-up routine that got booze from the audience you're not seeing the 25 takes it took to get that like oscar-worthy monologue you're seeing the finished product And so seeing that gap between that finished product and where you are, I think is hard because then you're Mm -hmm. like, there's no way I can get there. So I think the responsibility goes two ways. One, reminding yourself you're just starting out. And two, I think there's a responsibility on the part of creators who've been doing this for a long time to not curate constantly, to not just give this like perfect portrayal of their imperfect lives and to show the mess that came before, you know, here's what it took to make this book a reality or like here are the earlier versions that really sucked here are the mistakes i made and here are the failures that i had just to humanize the people that we admire a little bit more especially with social media now like the gap between us and the people we admire is so close you're constantly seeing their achievements which then makes it even harder to start but just know that every creator every single one without exception had embarrassing stages of creation in the very beginning and they got to where they are by moving past those stages and improving over
0: time. I just had such a good idea. (laughs) When you were talking, you sparked something in me. I was like, what if there was a museum of failure and everybody who now has done something great had to put all their failures into this museum and people could go walk around so that they could feel less bad about their failures or disappointments?
1: Yeah. I love that idea. Like rejection letters framed, you know, like (laughs)
0: we're going to
1: display them front and center. Yeah. That's a great idea.
0: Maybe we'll do that. You know, I think another great antidote to the disappointment is something you prescribe in the book, which is you say, stop overthinking and start experimenting, learning and improving. That's something I'm trying right now. You know, it's like, okay, I haven't done it the way I've been doing it. It hasn't music hasn't opened up to me in the way I've been trying it. But what if I tried it in these different ways? Can you tell me about the power of experimentation?
1: Sure. It's really easy to get stuck in your head, but you're not going to figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work until you actually try it. The article that launched my publishing career, I almost didn't publish it. I was really embarrassed by it. I wrote the thing and I was like, God. There's an article about why facts don't change people's minds and I read it And I thought to myself, my inner critic was really loud. He was like, this is so obvious. Like, people know this already. The writing isn't great. You're just telling them what's obvious. But my newsletter was due to go out the next morning. So I was like, I have no other option. So I'm going to publish this. I did. And then an editor from the Next Big Idea Club magazine reached out to me. And he's like, oh, this is really interesting. Can we cross post this on our site? I was like, sure. They did. And long story short, the article ended up going viral, like hundreds of thousands of social shares, all this stuff, all of these views, and then also traffic back to my site that I didn't even expect. It ended up landing on the desk of one of the authors I admired. He reached out to me personally. And then I ended up getting introduced to his agents, getting an agent, getting a publishing deal, all because of this article that I almost Came very close to not publishing. It just goes to show you just don't know what's going to work. The only way to find out what's going to work is to try it and see what happens.
0: Wow. And it's almost like maybe not always, but sometimes the more fear, embarrassment, like, oh, my gosh, should I do this? You feel maybe the bigger the thing is on the other side. And that's fear's last grip trying to hold you back before you zoom off like a rocket ship
1: i love that yeah it's so true the fear will be often the greatest when you're being the most vulnerable when you're leaning into those first principles like the things that made you weird or different and the fear comes in because fear is saying you've been shamed for this before you're going to get shamed again but the thing that you were shamed for before can actually be the thing that's going to make you extraordinary now And so, yeah, like seeing that and as a signal that this might actually be the right direction to take. Yeah, not always, but at least sometimes and leaning in with curiosity to see what's underneath the fear. Mm -hmm. What is fear telling me? What is the message embodied here that I need to hear is a great approach.
0: Yeah. And I think another thing that came up for me when you're talking about that is feeling again, going back to the body intelligence, feeling into your body and saying, okay, what's underneath this? what's underneath it, instead of just always, again, going back to our mind. So, so powerful. I have so many more things I want to ask you. I had five pages of questions, just so you know. (laughs) Your book is incredible. Anyone listening just needs to go out and get it, because we'll never get to all the things that were percolating for me as I was reading it. But it's just got so many tools. We have to get a little bit into your chapter on creativity. We've already talked about some of them. My favorite thing in this chapter was your take on the myth of shameless self-promotion. Let's talk about it.
1: Yeah. So I'm a non-native speaker of English. I learned English as a second language and grew up in a family of no English speakers. And so there are these like phrases that come up every now and then that totally stump me. I'm like, wait, what? And shameless self-promotion was one of them. Like when I first heard it, I was like, what does that even mean? So promotion is normally shameful, and if you're putting yourself out there and if you're promoting your ideas, then you must be shameless, which didn't make any sense to me. And I think it holds a lot of people back. And so I dedicated a section in the book to it. And the basic idea is, look, if you're not promoting yourself, then no one else will. If you're not putting your creations into the world, then no one else will. Life isn't field the dreams and you're not Kevin Costner, right? If you build it and you do nothing to promote it, then no one will come. Like if I don't promote my book, the readers won't come. If you don't promote your business, the customers won't come. And I think it's important to keep in mind, we often shrink. We often say, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to be a burden on people. But if you're promoting with kindness, if you're promoting with permission to people who've raised their hands and said, yeah, I'm interested in this. If you're not spamming people, self-promotion is an act of love. It's not an act of, of shame. It's an act of love for the people that want the thing, that need the thing that you're giving to them. Because your words can unlock their words. Your expansion can inspire other people to expand. Your voice can change the way that people think and act, but it can't do any of that If you keep your mouth shut for me self-promotion or actually refusing to promote your creations is actually the selfish thing because you're basically withholding what you created from the world to protect your own ego and to not promote yourself is like well i'm going to create these ideas and not execute on them i'm going to write poems and not share them i'm going to create stories and hoard them So it's time to take the shame out of shameless self-promotion. I think if there's any shame, it's in not promoting something, not putting something out into the world that's going to benefit other people and enrich their lives.
0: I love how now twice you've talked about something that is typically thought of as something that could be really scary, something that could feel shameful, something that could be riddled with negative emotions. And reframing it as an act of love. And I just want to speak to you listening now. If there's something in your life like that, and Ozan was talking about it in regard to promoting your work or letting go of one dream for one that is more true to you, consider how this thing you're afraid of could actually be an act of love for both yourself and the world. Speaking of love, one of the goals of this show is to give people, as I said, tools to love themselves to develop true self-love enough to go after what's on their heart. What is a way you work toward loving yourself in an honest and authentic way? And how does that help you put yourself out into the world every day?
1: I will look at the mirror from time to time and say, I love you. Like, I love you so much. And I'm often speaking to the inner boy, by the way, not the current version of me, but the inner boy who was shamed, who was forced into conformity in so many different ways. And I just talked to him and I give him the love that he didn't have in those moments and say, man, like, I got you. I got your back. I love you. We're in this together. And I know you're scared. I know you're afraid. I know we're about to do something really, really vulnerable, but I've got you and I love you. I'm here for you. And I'll even like hold my leg while I say that just to really ground myself in the body and form that connection. And the message needs to be repeated over and over again like that boy that inner shame boy or girl or person they need to hear that message over and over again we all do we often go looking for love from external sources but we don't give it to ourselves like we don't talk to ourselves and we don't tell ourselves that we love ourselves and we love that inner child and i think it begins there and often then we blame our partners significant others for not giving us what we've haven't given ourselves. So you have to give it to yourself first before you can start asking for it from other people. So that's something I do on a regular basis.
0: That's beautiful. Ozan, thank you for the way you have learned to love yourself, to share that love with other people, and just for the way you show up in the world. You are such a gift. Your work is such a gift. It's helping us learn who we are and how we can show up with love. And I want to leave people with this. This is something you wrote in the book that I thought was so beautiful. It brought me to tears. You don't need a red pill or ruby red slippers to start this journey. You are already home. Turn the page and start to walk back to yourself. Thank you for helping us all walk back to ourselves, Ozan. You are incredible.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening, and thanks to my guest, Ozan Veril. For more info on Ozan, follow him at Ozan Veril. His book, Awaken Your Genius, is out now and available on his website, ozanveril.com, or wherever good books are found. And by the way, Ozan is spelled O-Z-A-N, and Veryl is spelled V-A-R-O-L. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz full And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. You can tag me at Lauren Legrosso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guest at Ozan Vero so he can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you find a way to truly and deeply love yourself. You're human, you're strong, you're impactful. Remember, you don't need to go outside of yourself searching for love. It's all in you. I love you and I believe in you talk with you next week.